Welcome to our second episode of Around the Table, a property-focused podcast by Building Relations. Here we aim to unpick housing stories, including the transition to net zero, rising construction costs, recruiting and retaining talent, as well as new policies and legislation affecting the housing sector. In this episode, we will hear from two experts on how they are helping to push biodiversity up the agenda in the built environment and create green spaces in urban areas. New legislation came into force this month, which requires developers to create a mandatory biodiversity net gain of 10%. This will affect more than 100,000 planning applications each year, so new strategies are needed to allow nature to thrive. So what does biodiversity net gain actually mean, and how will house builders achieve it? We'll be exploring this and so much more on this episode. I'm Natalie Daniels, Sustainability PR Director at Building Relations. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Andy Pankhurst, a director at Southern Ecological Solutions, a specialist ecological consultancy service with a range of clients, including house builders. With an impressive history of delivering complex projects, Andrew specialises primarily on supporting clients with biodiversity net gain. His passion for placemaking and holistic solutions has seen Andy lead the company's habitat creation team. Welcome, Andy. Hello. And our second guest today is Ed Gritton, an Engagement and Insight Officer at the Quality of Life Foundation. This organisation helps local communities, professionals and policymakers to create homes and neighbourhoods to benefit people's health and well-being. With a background in built environment communications and extensive charity sector experience, Ed believes in supporting sustainable communities through holistic engagement. Thank you both so much for joining me today. And hello, Ed. Hello. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to kickstart this podcast by going back to the basics. Andy, I'll come to you first and ask sort of what is biodiversity net gain and talk us through some of the changes that take place this month. Okay. Thank you, Natalie. Um, I'll try and do this in a nutshell, otherwise I might disappear down a rather large rabbit hole. <laughs> As you, you mentioned, B&G or biodiversity net gain is now mandatory from the 12th of February. That's across most developments. Uh, for small sites, that's going to be likely to be mandatory on the 2nd of April uh, this year. There are some exemptions, but without without going into them, it's we just look at most, most developments. B&G is now mandatory. B&G is not new. It's been evolving over the years. Um, it's been evolving around a number of principles. So there are 10 guiding principles, which has led us to this juncture. So at its simplest form, biodiversity net gain provides a development should have a measurable positive impact, i.e. a net gain, compared to what was there before. Um, the example being uh, for a standard residential development, we have an arable field with hedgerows and a woodland. That will all have a value, and that will be your pre-intervention score. And then you would have your post-intervention score, which would include your developments and all other habitats that are included within it. The big question is, what, what is 10% and how, how do you deliver it? How is it measurable? It's measured via a biodiversity net gain metric. There have been a number of iterations of this metric. And the one that everybody must use is called the statutory metric which was enforceable as of the, or you must be used as of the 12th of February. This metric provides the basis for estimating that pre-intervention score and also that post-intervention score, which we briefly, I briefly mentioned. 
uh, and it uses a consistent currency, which are biodiversity units. So it looks to standardize and make uh, biodiversity net gain objective. Um, so it's standardized across the industry. Uh, biodiversity units are calculated on area as its core measurement, except for linear habitats, such as hedgerows, rivers, and streams, where it's a habitat length, which is measured. The metric basically has a number of risk multipliers within it, without wishing to get too technical and have the leadership drop off too much. It's basically a carrot and stick. So if we go back to our first example, the arable field would have a is considered to be a, a lower value habitat, have a lower distinctiveness than the woodland block. So if we were to to look to lose the woodland, the risk multiplier within the metric would apply a stick to you and it would cause the, your result and your requirement for the net gain post-intervention to be much higher than it would be if you were to retain and enhance that habitat. It tries to encourage you to retain quality and uh, quality habitats and enhance those where possible. And Andy, you mentioned that this has been around for some time now. Yeah. How can developers maximise the benefits of B&G changes? And just, I guess, how achievable is the mandatory 10% requirement? Theoretically, the, the 10% requirement is achievable in all development sites. I'll slightly caveat that with sites that have irreplaceable habitats or habitats of uh, are very high distinctiveness so basically those habitats which is it's very very scientifically it's very very difficult if not impossible to replace an example an obvious example of that would be ancient woodland the the problem developers have um and the biggest challenges they have delivering that 10 percent is it's it's the cost of that 10 percent so that we can all deliver it, but it's early engagement with expert advice to to plan in key habitats, to to build an actual appropriate viability, building in biodiversity net gain, because it can be very costly uh, in terms of financial sense of buying units if you can't meet your biodiversity net gain requirements on site. You would need to go off site with an off site provider, uh, and that can run into tens, thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of pounds depended on the site size. So developers should engage for an ecologist at a very early stage, uh, whether it be um, land buying stage, plan promotion stage, but just as early as possible to try and build in those habitats and really understand those constraints. Because traditionally ecologists would be brought in after the initial viability stage uh, of the land purchase to, to build in mitigation costs. But now I think we need to be brought in a lot earlier and uh, a lot of developers and our clients are alive to this fact and we, we're engaged really early to look at actually what's viable on this site, what's deliverable. And Ed, in terms of implementation on B&G, obviously Andy mentioned there that he's at the very start of the journey, but seeing B&G on the ground, what are some of the initiatives you are seeing from developers to improve sort of green spaces? Yeah, sure. So the Quality of Life Foundation, the, the organisation I work for, we've recently published a report highlighting um, good examples of BNG projects and nature-based solutions um, involving local communities. And this is, as Annie was saying, this is not a new field for many developers. You've got the likes of Barclay uh, at Kidbrook Village. Um, that's quite a good example. And, and they're predicted to have a BNG of more than 250% upon completion. 
part of the success is uh, collaboration really with local organizations and support with setting up local groups like Friends of the Park and resident forums. And there's ongoing partnerships with the London Wildlife Trust, which has helped residents understand the more sort of natural landscaping approach and get interested in in what a healthy habitat looks like. It's not just developers, but also like social landlord developers and, and housing associations. Some of them are really leading the way. In our report, we also highlight Queensland Court and Gardens in Glasgow, which is owned by Southern Housing Association. Um, it's a retrofit green infrastructure project which was helped by uh, Building with Nature and their uh, framework and accreditation system. And community engagement there was was used as a sort of bridge between all the phases of the development. The community were guided and helped interfeeding into both the development, uh, but also the design process and ongoing management of the maintenance, which is, I think, really vital. And it involved lots of rain gardens and climate resilient infrastructure, uh, which is always a really great way of getting people involved. I know also the likes of Clarion and Peabody and Notting Hill Genesis and and all those big housing associations have done great work for a number of years now. But I know for for some large organisations like that, they have great examples, but it can take a little bit of time to trickle down into the rest of their portfolio. And Ed, you mentioned obviously there are a few examples of where B&G is being implemented. I guess to both of you now, what what do you believe are some of the greatest opportunities for developers with biodiversity net gain what can they put back to nature i'll kick off with you again please ed sure so there are huge opportunities i mean there's uh opportunities to get involved in really cool organizations um if we're talking about uh, i mean I'm, I'm based in london but um there are some great groups like flock together or so many cool community in- initiatives uh, that have such a positive impact there's also uh, the sort of long-term cost benefit, um, and it'd be interesting to hear from from Andy from this about how these spaces are maintained and if these spaces can be self-sustained through using community groups and resident groups. I think that's a that's a big opportunity and potential cost saving for developers. As, as well as that, I think just generally, you know, when you when you have these green and the natural spaces, it gives communities it can provide a sense of belonging for a lot of people, and I think that's vital. And if people feel together and feel a sense of community, then they're probably more likely to take care of, of their space and, and of their neighbourhood. This can benefit, you know, in so many ways from mental and physical health and and from someone's loneliness. And we've got so much data suggesting, you know, numerous positive health outcomes basically through interacting with nature. So yeah, lots of lots of opportunities. For me, one of the biggest opportunities for developers and it's it's good to to look at the to the real world as well. It's it's place making. So if if you're building in uh, early engagement and retaining key green green infrastructure and building around it, you're actually looking to add to that place making a quality place to live, adding to sales value. So we have a site called Kingsbrook in Aylesbury, which was a case study as um, an ecological exemplar. It's a BNG principles case study so it sort of it was it predated the metric but all of the principles of the development were there where we looked to is a greenfield site but we looked to build around and complement a lot of the habitats which were there and the the scheme is probably two-thirds of the way through it's 2,500 units and it's it's been recognized as by the RSPB as a, a site of what development should look like in the future and it's 
it's a fantastic place and I think the bottom line is that it's sold really well so it sort of really hits home that uh, nature and development aren't mutually exclusive and we can build homes and communities which are very much needed and we can do them in greenfield sites but we can do them in the right way and biodiversity net gain builds on Kingsbrook to another level because it builds that measurability that that maintenance and monitoring which which Ed spoke about so there are some technical aspects of that so you've got to be careful with volunteer groups and things like that you're going to have obligations to to maintain and uh, monitor these these sites for uh, a period of 30 years and they've got to They've got to reach the target conditions which you set, which you set in the metric. So there are there are some pitfalls, but there there are, there are obviously some obvious opportunities that you'll be maintaining some high quality habitats with all the benefits that Ed said. But the benefits of the developer are sales and the reputation and the brand that you this company can do things in a in an environmentally sensitive way, and it does do things, and it can prove it. Andy, obviously you talked there about some of the opportunities and some of the flaws and, and some of the challenges. I guess, Ed, from your perspective, what are the challenges that you're sort of seeing from your perspective in terms of implementation and what you're seeing at the Quality of Life Foundation? Yeah, I think Andy hits an important point in terms of, you know, obviously you need a 30-year plan and you can't expect a local community to, you know, it, it takes money and resources and, and time to properly look after these spaces. I think there needs to be a sort of a mixed approach where, you know, you have resident groups, but maybe with some oversight from, you know, maintenance companies or management companies. But yeah, I think uh, the main challenges we're seeing, especially from local councils, is just capacity and, and resources. You know, they need to upskill their employees. When it comes to cost, I think there's a, an initial perception that uh, and, and it, there is an initial cost in terms of developing well-designed green spaces but I think what we want to see is and what we're seeing is that there's a bit of a perspective shift in terms of you know these green spaces are now assets they're not sort of liabilities in, in the long run they're actually gonna pay back I talked to lots of residents who, who who really, really appreciate their green spaces and so it's obviously uh, not just you know it's not just an everyday living benefit but it's also um, what consumers want. And Ed obviously you mentioned some of the developers that achieving far greater on the biodiversity net gain targets you know it'd be good to know Andy from you are you finding a drive from sort of the sector to go above and beyond government targets and achieve far greater than a 10% requirement? I think this this sort of couples quite nicely back to sort of the biggest challenges for developers. So um, if you don't mind, I'll sort of segue back to that and hopefully that will answer this question as well. Part of the biggest challenge that my developer clients have is a lack of clarity, a lack of guidance. Biodiversity net has been put back and back and back, but the guidance has been released at quite late in the day. So trying to get ready for what is quite a big change of how you do things is, is has been difficult. There's also uh, the local planning authorities, as we know, uh, are stretched for resources and they're going to need in-house or a, a resource of expert advice. Now, they do they do receive some additional funding, but it remains to be seen whether that is going to be cover the cost. I suspect that it won't. And also the availability of... so. 
biodiversity net gain, you, you should look on site, first of all, like we spoke about. And if you can't satisfy your 10% on site, then you need to go off site. Right, I'm a developer, I need to go off site. There is no market available at the moment. Now, there are different players coming into the market. We help clients, landowners, develop land banks, uh, habitat banks rather, to be able to sell these units. But because of the lack of the clarity, there has been um, a real sort of reluctance, understandably so, to commit yourself to go down that direction. So just to sort of get back to that that 10% requirement, local planning authorities are looking at it. But the question is, if we're not really 100% sure how well and easy it is to deliver 10%, is it the right thing to do to go above and beyond that yet? So I think most of our clients are, are looking at to achieve that surplus. 10% is their absolute minimum. They're looking to achieve that surplus because with that surplus, again, there's the, the PR, the brand recognition, but there is also potential for them to sell those units to other schemes. So they are, they are looking to do that, but there's not a talk of, right, we, sh- we should hit 20, we need to hit 30. Now, some schemes, for example, as a, Dunton Hills Garden Village, which in Basildon District Council, which has just uh, received planning permission, we set an aspiration of 20% across the scheme. Now, it's an outline stage, so it's it's an aspirational target to hit, but a minimum of 10. So we were trying to be tr- transparent, working with stakeholders to try and deliver that additional um, biodiversity net gain. It, it looks like we, we do have that predicted at the moment, but obviously the devil's in the detail when you actually get on the ground and start doing things. So short answer is, I think they're focusing on the 10%. Anything extra is an absolute is an absolute bonus and they are proactively pushing for it. And Andy, you mentioned there, obviously, the stakeholder engagement, but coming on to sort of the community stuff, and, and Ed, you mentioned this earlier, but how can, I guess, developers get communities involved in this process, get them brought in to obviously biodiversity net gain? What, what can they be doing? There's so many, so many ways and and great opportunities and ways to be quite creative too. You know, if 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 developers can just explain that it's just about loving your neighbourhood and loving nature and and as a whole, um, then biodiversity will will probably follow. Hopefully, obviously, it involves good planning and design. But and if they can have a proper sort of stewardship plan in place, that would really help. And I think a key thing for us is is to make sure that engagement is used as a bridge throughout the project and the project timeline. If you have a development, you know, you have a landscape first approach, but you also have a, a community engagement first approach. You know, these things should all be, should all start together for us. There shouldn't really be that much excuse for sort of short termism and making a quick buck and, and going away nowadays. I, I don't think, you know, A, it's not what people the consumer wants but also it's just not it's not viable if we can support nature i feel like we're more likely to support ourselves we can learn so much about nature itself you know in terms of our biophilic response so basically how humans interact with the relationship with nature we're just finding out all the all the amazing benefits that has the health benefits are huge from clean air to loneliness and and obviously we haven't uh you know the, the climate pressures and and how these developments will need to be We'll need climate resilient infrastructure and, and that will involve getting people on board. It's really important to get the residents on board. Otherwise, it's, they're just not going to they're not going to work. So, yeah. Just uh, to add to Ed's point, I agree with you. You need to bring local residents on board with you. But it's also key. And we, we found from initial experience as well is is 
what is pragmatic what do, you can't just expect people to to understand people will say oh that's not been managed they used to amenity grass and throughout so it it's having areas where you say okay this needs to have more of an amenity feel for it and, it, and then it's providing that education in areas which are less managed and more more biodiverse so yeah it, it's about that communication too then but it's not to just expect everybody all of a sudden to understand oh biodiversity net gain or climate crisis we need to suddenly completely do a 180 i just don't think that's practical so you, you need to be pragmatic in what you're trying to achieve and with biodiversity net gain and the use of the metric and what you're going for that's absolutely critical because if you if you try and create semi-natural habitats across your entire site you're going to be in for a rude awakening that it's not going to happen I agree. I I love that point, Andy, that it is about education as well. And I think that is something that's so important as we move forward. And I I think we will all agree that nature is so important to our planet and to our climate moving forward. Um, So it's, it's only right that we protect it. Just on our last point today, I think what I would like to get from you guys is what is your sort of one key message or fact that you would like to give our audience to take away from today? So I'll come to you, Ed, first. I just think, so BNG, I think for me, is just part of a wider agenda for nature and for healthy communities. I totally agree with Andy. I think you really need to be pragmatic and you can't expect people just to, you know, I think there's a certain privilege in in terms of expecting people to have the time and money and and resources to to help out. But I think there there are so many great opportunities for people to feel connected to their local area and to feel like it's their land and it's their soil. And I would be tempted just to say, like, I don't know, this is probably maybe not very responsible, but, you know, the next time someone is in the supermarket or whatever, if they can feel able to buy a packet of a couple of seeds or experiment with chucking them around their local area and just seeing what, what you know, see what happens. I think just playing with with how you get involved with nature, I think is really important. So yeah, go out and experiment. That's, yeah, that's what I would say. Andy? Um, I think it's, biodiversity net gain is a tool. It's not it's not a golden bullet, but my takeaway message simply would be from your developer clients is get early engagement. This is a statutory requirement. It's going to happen. It's going to have a, a fundamental effect on viability, but it also can be a very positive thing. So engage early, build it into your processes as early as you possibly can and simple as that thank you both on that note i would like to thank you for joining us today it's been really insightful and um yeah absolutely loved today's episode so thank you both for joining welcome thank you very much natalie we would love to hear your thoughts on this episode please do let us know and don't forget to subscribe via spotify apple or via other podcast platforms And do remember to visit our website at www.building-relations.co.uk.